Hey, Jailbirds! Welcome back to Jailbird Chronicles. I'm Ashley. And I'm Brittany, and we're two forensic social workers getting chatty about criminal justice. Jailbird Chronicles. Hello, Jailbirds! We hope you're enjoying the holiday season. Thanks for tuning in to part two about our discussion regarding this whole topic of decarceration. Last week, we talked about how people are portraying the criminal justice system and the needs for reform in the media and gave our perspective from the other side of the barbed wire. This week, we'll do the same when diving deeper into decarceration and discussing some people's thoughts that jails and prisons should be abolished altogether. We also share some suggestions that might be able to bring a happy medium and rehabilitation efforts to the people who are incarcerated. So let's get into it. The city of New York statement went on to say that the smaller jail system that will be built will be built in dignity and respect and I just want to make it very clear that new buildings do not make um, an environment that is built on dignity and respect people do that and that's more of a training thing and how people are interacting and the morale being built within um, the department of corrections with the officers and the captains and the wardens and the depth wardens, as well as the civilian workers and how they collaborate together and how we all collaborate with people in the community and how we work with the incarcerated people. That's what, um, is, that's how you build dignity and respect within any facility and any environment, um, creating a new building that's modern and in the community is not going to change the way that people treat each other and interact with each other. Also, the end of the day, kind of hard to build a new smaller building on dignity and respect, very much using air quotes right now, if you could see me, when you're building it based on a system that's completely based in racism based in racism and different prejudices and um and also like we said if you're trying to build new facilities and you're not building them keeping in mind all the needs of the different populations that you're gonna be housing in those buildings as well as um the fact that the number of incarcerated people are not falling regardless of the efforts being put in place to do so um you're about to have a bunch of overcrowded buildings and I'm kind of thinking back to when I worked in foster care and administration of children's services in New York City, um, they built what's called the Children's Center. And that was just supposed to be a transitional place so that if they had to remove a child and um, they didn't have a place for them to go right away, 
they could stay at the children's center until they get them into a program or a foster home or whatever it is. They made um, 50 beds in the children's center for those kids. Um, at one point, their census was 190. Yeah, casual. And I see that happening if you're not addressing the issues in the community that are causing people to come into jail and end up being incarcerated we're gonna have a great modern building possibly with air conditioner conditioning in every unit and um we're we're gonna have people sleeping on the floor we're gonna have people sleeping on cots and that's certainly not humane right and like for anyone who doesn't know um Brittany I don't know how it was in DC but like New York City jails only have single man cells uh in in DC they have um they have doubles so like for a lot of our guys single man cells were a safe haven Especially like what we had said in a previous episode for people who have severe mental illness, a lot of them like to either have a space where they can go and kind of withdraw and be alone or they like the security of having their own space because it can even be anxiety provoking and triggering for people who have severe mental illness to be around other people sometimes yeah or I mean unfortunately I think it's just inhumane in general but when we have people with IDD which are intellectual disabilities they can be very overstimulated Mm -hmm. by too many people and too many things happening and those smaller cell houses make them and gives them the ability to regroup and then come back. Um, like we have patients with autism. I have like two, one or two right now, if not more, you know, and for them, sometimes too much of the popul like too much population is overstimulating. Mm-hmm. To give them a space to be able to hold, pull it together just a little bit. And if we have overcrowding, they're never going to get that. And they're still going to. City of New York in their statement also went on to say that the new facilities in the boroughs would house a jail population of approximately 5,000, reflecting the reality that both crime and the number of people in jail continue to fall. So that's not happening. And this was something that they... This was a part of a statement that they put out in 2017. It is now about to be 2022, and the plan was to close Rikers Island in 2027. Not only do we not have borough facilities to um, accomplish that goal that de Blasio had, but um, we still have a high number of incarcerated people that continues to fluctuate. And as... I continue to stress reduction in crime depends on legislation and reduction in the amount of people being held in jails depends on legislation and the judicial system and what the judge determines and how long trials are allowed to be 
dragged out for. Brittany, there was question. Mm-hmm. Have you ever met someone that doesn't believe in the jail and penal system at all? Like, they um, should be incarcerated? No, but I was actually reading on the real news. They posted a transcript of a rattling the bars episode, and they were saying to that we should close Rikers Island and not put any jails in its place, which means no one gets incarcerated um, during their trial period, which is people who murder people, people who rape people, um, people who are involved in terrorism, um, organized crime. And they're calling for not only decarceration, but decriminalization. And I'm just wondering, like, decriminalization of what? Of, like, lower-level offenses or, like, murder one? Right. Um, So I have a friend, um, did not think we were going to be friends, I will preface that, that when I first met them, did not believe in incarceration thought that we needed to just let everyone out and that was that then that person started to work on Rikers with us and that person for a while in the beginning we also thought that person was going to quit that person insisted that that's how they felt um and then that person got their own housing units and their own caseloads um that person definitely changed their mind very fast after that That person no longer believes that everyone should um, be let go to the community. They do believe that there are definitely people like we all do that should not be incarcerated or for the amount of time that they are. However, um, they they changed their mind pretty quickly once they actually started to live it. Yeah, which goes back to what I was saying that when you're hearing about a facility from the media and the image that they want to um, portray to you or you do get the privilege of actually going in and interacting with the system and being an eyewitness to what's going on really take advantage of that ask questions ask to meet with other people not just you don't have to be limited to just whoever's giving you the tour And the few incarcerated people that you come in contact with and you still won't get a full picture because you're not in there every day. But I guarantee you that if you actually were in there, if your job was to do advocacy on how to reform the system and you actually had to have your office in one of these facilities and be there every single day, your whole perspective would change. And that would probably really be a good thing because people who are in these positions to have a voice and to advocate for reform really need that perspective. They need the experience that we have on the inside, but we don't always we and other people that we work with don't always get to voice because, you know, it's, it's not the narrative that everyone wants. Um, Because I do think that sometimes advocacy, people who 
are doing advocacy, organizations have a narrative that they want to go to and having the perspective from people who are actually in the system kind of screws it up. So maybe they don't want to hear it. Um, but if you want to like really make this reform successful and you really want to change the criminal justice system, you have to get into it in that way. You have to get yourself involved. And if if you actually get the chance to have a position where you get to sit in there every day, you're going to see and you're going to really have a better perspective on what's going on and how you can change it because it's totally different to read a book about something or read an article about something from someone else's perspective than it is to go sit in a jail five days a week eight hours per day and interact with every aspect of the system right like there's a patient um it's happened more than once but this one story comes to my brain specifically about a patient that went and did a news article with this woman um, and she published it and he did it from inside the jail. And yet this woman made him out to be this martyr. She forgot to mention that some of his charges are all sexually motivated um, and that he frequently um, actually wreaks havoc upon all female staff and repeatedly exposes himself. And that's why it's really important to ask different people and get different perspectives because, you know, you only see one side of the story. For instance, someone at the D.C. jail complained that his water in his cell was turned off. Get the full picture of that story and he was flooding and the water was overflowing onto the tears and the only way to stop him from doing that was to turn the water off. And in my experience, I'm working on Rikers Island when the officers used to have to do that. Once the patient calmed down, they would turn the water back on. Oh yeah, it's happened to me uh, more than once. So there are different things. We, We also have to understand that that the people who are incarcerated, not all of them always have the best intentions when they're explaining a story to someone who's giving them an ear. Right. And vice versa comes for, you know, it, it works on both ends. And this is why you need to talk to both ends. Because yeah, that's why it isn't going to give you a perfect story. Right. That's why it's important to talk to multiple people who are in different positions and in different roles within the system so that you can collect all this information and make an informed decision about what's going on and how to move forward. Right. Um, In D.C., there's... There's an organization called Harriet's Wildest Dream, which, by the way, I actually really love that name. (laughs) And um, their mission is to abolish jails and prisons. And um, I 
couldn't really get a clear understanding when I went on their website, um, a clear plan written out of how they plan to do that. Um, because that's a very extreme, um, that's a very extreme goal from where we are now. And I don't know what, how they feel the process would go or what steps they're going to take, or if they think we're going to go from A to Z. Um, I'm not sure. Um, one of the things that they do, um, I was in a meeting with a couple of people who are from the organization and they were talking about how they do court observations and they feel like those court observations put pressure on judges to act justly and basically like not abuse their power when they're presiding over a trial or doing sentencing. Um, I think that that sounds heavenly, actually. I would love that. I think that in some situations, if you definitely have enough people with you sitting in a courtroom and the judges know, start to know who you are, um, they may take notice and it may put pressure on them as they're humans too. And they definitely want to be reelected into their positions. And, um, I, I, I mean, I even know that when I was in, um, when I was in college studying administration of justice, and then when I was in graduate school, um, concentrating on forensic social work, in both places, undergrad and grad school, I had, it was mandatory for me to sit in and do court observations for all different courts. And I, I, can recall and I, I'm just one person and I was there observing for a class you know not to do any advocacy work but there was one judge in particular I sat in the back of the courtroom and the courtroom was pretty much empty there was maybe one or two other people it was over a criminal case and um I remember the judge kept um like looking at me like like I guess it kind of seems like trying to figure out who is that and why is she here and why is she taking notes? Um, so I think that there are some judges who will take note of that and um, maybe stick to being just in their decisions. Um, but some judges as, you know, America has shown us time and time again, as well as, you know, more intensely, this the last administration has shown us. Some judges think that what they're doing is the right thing, or they just, I mean, nothing that you do or say is really going to change their mind on something. And that's just the way they do it. But I, I think that it could go both ways. And it just depends on the judge, but I wish I had more, um, more information to see how effective that actually is. I would love to see some statistics, um, and some data that they've collected on how successful this has been and how long they've been doing it. 
A hundred percent, because, um, Brittany, I don't even know if you necessarily know this, but, um, there was a massive, massive raid in the Bronx a f- few years back, and they took in, it's one of the biggest raids, federal raids they've ever done, and I had a patient, I mean, I had multiple patients that got arrested in the raid, but I had one patient in particular that his attorney, I think was his attorney, and his mother, possibly both of them. I don't remember exactly who reached out first um, and asked us to write character statements about this guy, um, which I was more than willing to do. Sweet, sweet kid. There's a long story to it, but we were all in the courtroom that day. I was in the, at his sentencing. I was in the courtroom. My old coworker was there, his family, his girlfriends, multiple family members, and that judge just said, fucking through the book at him so it's hard because I've experienced the polar opposite of that before where you have members of the community standing there with you and it still doesn't work yeah which is which is why I would like to see if you know how long they've been doing this at Harriet's wild dream wildest dream and um the success rate of what they found if and and how they're also defining um whether judges are um you know being just or not and also what their mindset is about like are you like what is what is not really the motive but like are you actually there to put pressure to make sure that you know, certain groups of people aren't being like, like, what is the actual motive? I would love to know what their clear motive is, as well as how successful they think that they've been because there are going to be some times when judges are going to have to put someone in jail just because that's the only method they have to utilize and there's also um there's also things that kind of tie their hands um such as mandatory minimums um that they're kind of bound by and they can't really do anything about so I would really love to know more about just the whole thing I I couldn't really find too much detail other than um their mission is to abolish jails and prisons and because i was involved in a meeting where someone was speaking that they do court observations i would love to know the um and then um like i said with the issues that have been coming up about D.C. jail after the U.S. Marshals did their inspection and found that it was inhumane. Um, After that whole uproar surrounding the current conditions there, the mayor's office made a statement regarding plans to make this current jail more humane until they can make a new quote-unquote safe jail. And my argument that I discussed in the episode called Full Exposure 
my argument was what is a safe jail because the mayor's office doc all these administrators allowed these inhumane conditions until the u.s marshal stepped in and said absolutely not these are inhumane conditions you clearly thought those inhumane conditions were safe so what am i trusting you to make a safe jail what does safe mean to you if he inhumane appeared safe to you it's a solid question so is it just the issue that i continue to have where it's like you're just taking a problem and taking it out of an old dirty building and putting it into a new modernized building that one day is going to be an old dirty building with the same problems like what exactly are we doing here right after that um came out public defender service in dc um issued a uh published a letter which in that episode full exposure I did read parts of and respond to parts of um they put out this statement calling for the immediate release of all persons detained at the DC jail and that's a whole lot of jumping from A to Z and dangerous advocacy in my opinion because there's around 1,400 people incarcerated at the D.C. jail and you're saying to release them all at once regardless of what they're being held there on? It just sounds like mass chaos. It'll be like bail reform all over again in New York. It is, and it's one of those things like the statement that was made by the Assemblymember Gallagher about Rikers Island it's one of those things that just seems like you're trying to be provocative and get people wound up and you're not actually helping anything you're just getting people hyper and they don't actually know anything other than the words that you're putting on paper and the words that you're putting on paper don't even reflect the um don't even reflect the system as a whole. So like these agencies that have this platform and have this power, like just need to be really careful and really well-rounded when they make statements like this, because it's not just as easy as saying all 1400 people get released. Remember not all 1400 people have a place to get released to. And these issue dc has a serious homelessness problem and you're you're just going to continue to overwhelm the streets and the shelters by making a statement like that what if they actually followed through with that what if they said okay you know what pds is right all of you you're out on the streets today those people won't even know where to go. No. A lot of them. Some of them some of them do have families. They do have a place to go. They do have a home to go to. A lot of them don't. Most of them don't. It's why they're incarcerated. If you stopped criminalizing homelessness, then maybe we'd be able to change some things too. 
And I think that for the foreseeable future, um, jails and prisons will be a necessary tool in the criminal justice system. Even if we make more rehabilitative um, facilities and programs for people, um, there are certainly going to be the people who are not open to rehabilitation. And there are certainly going to be people who genuinely think that whatever crime it is that they committed that got them there was the right thing to do. Like what you might call sociopathy, psychopathy, really is just antisocial personality disorder. That's a thing. Like, it is legitimately a thing. There are legitimate people that have no emotions. And, like, this is coming from a mental health professional. It is a thing. It's not some made-up thing that we just call people. There are people with sociopathy, antisocial personality disorder, that have no regard. And some of them, some people with soci... uh, Gosh, wow, my brain is fried. Sociopathy... Mm -hmm you know, they can function and they're not going to go out and commit crimes. But there are other people that will and they have no cares about doing it. They don't care about the repercussions. They don't care about who they hurt. It's not just some like fantasy made up thing. These are real actual things that happen in the mental health field. And it's not okay. And those people need to be put somewhere where they can't hurt anyone else. Especially when those people are not open to changing their mindset and changing their ways. There are people who genuinely, people that I've heard who have brutally murdered someone over something that really isn't that serious. Like, you know, to to me at least, you know, this, this person decided that they didn't want to be involved in what you were doing anymore. And to that person they felt like they were justified in murdering that person for not wanting to deal with them anymore. And they'll stand true to that to this day, to the day that they die. And they don't even care about being in prison because it doesn't mean anything to them. And there are people who are still sitting in prison who will murder people in prison if, you know, you pay them the right dollar amount. And these people won't change and have no interest in changing is what the issue is. When they don't have an interest in changing, they're not open to changing their mindset. And they're so stuck that whatever they're doing that got them in trouble in the first place was the right thing to do. Those people, unfortunately, they're not going to be rehabilitated because they don't want to be. And um, there is such a thing called justice Hmm. where you know people take it into their own hands to deal with people who have crossed them in some way and there is nothing that you will say to those people who maybe murdered someone for stealing from them maybe just you know a scenario there's nothing that you're going to say to them to make them feel like 
what they did was the wrong thing because they've been raised with the mindset that someone crosses you, you handle that person. Those people aren't always going to want to see a different way. And therefore having rehabilitative centers are not going to work for them. Yeah. It's the same with jail justice. There are just things you don't, you don't do. And if you do them and you get injured in the process, that's just kind of what it is. And no one can stop them no matter how much you try. Cause I've tried in the past. Doesn't work. And for the people who are open to being rehabilitated and the people who have mental illness and have gotten in trouble because maybe they were psychotic or, or something, they were overstimulated and they acted out in some way. Um, I'm wondering, would a situation like an RTC, which is a residential treatment center, or an RTF, which is a residential treatment facility, the residential treatment facilities are for people with mental illness, um, not just behavioral issues, but I'm wondering, those are options for adolescents up to the age of 21. You can't, they have those for adolescents as alternatives to going to jail. I worked with many adolescents who were in those programs, but they always had juvenile detention centers as backup. So if someone was given the chance to be in this rehabilitative setting, then, and they just were not compliant at all. Nothing was getting through to them. And trust me, at least at the um, agency that I was working with, they would exhaust every resource they could on an adolescent who was in any one of their programs. But once you exhaust those resources and that person's not open to what you're giving to them to make that change, to do better in their life, um, they would they would have to go to the juvenile detention um, center. So even there, there's that backup. I'm wondering if for the people open to rehabilitation, if making like RTCs and RTFs for adults could be an option. They're still kind of secure facilities, but not totally locked down. They're not surrounded by gates or anything. You still have a little bit of freedom and level systems and privileges when you reach different levels. But even with that, you're still going to have the backup of jails and prisons for the people who just cannot be successful in those programs. And for the people who just, you know, are, are not even going to be open to being in those programs to begin with. I mean, I think that's only fair. I really do think that's only fair. I mean, I could... I could see it. There, there's people that there's adolescents that, you know, RTCs have really worked for. Why not make such why not make that an available option for the judges to quote unquote sentence people to for the people who are open to that. And I know that there are some um, 
certain courts like substance abuse court and sex offender court in some places that, you know, take a more rehabilitative stance. But what if instead of making new jails, we start doing RTCs and RTFs for adults and the jails that we have, unless like they're at a point of no return, we modernize them. Sounds like a great plan. And if I'm being like fishy, facetious, <laughs> um, you know, when, when I, I, I always like make this joke in my head, um, when people make such like out there statements about like, we call for the immediate release of all incarcerated people in the DC jail there's a humanitarian crisis. People are being abused and neglected and this and that. Um, and we want these jails closed and that jail closed and we don't want any jails. Why don't we take another page out of the foster care systems book and start making TFCOs for people who are facing sentences. And for those people who don't know what a TFCO is, it stands for therapeutic foster care of Oregon or something. But um, that was another option that we had in foster care for adolescents. And basically, it was a foster home where you got all of your intensive services, you fostered only one person. And that person got all of their services in that home, like as if they were somewhere between a foster home and an RTC, but they were the only one in that home and they were getting all the services right there in that home. Um, would you like that and have the people who are supposed to be incarcerated come live in your house and you could foster them? Oh my gosh. Can I send one to that assembly woman first? I mean, she was on my mind when she made that statement, you know, whenever I see it really out, you know, really extreme statements like that I'm like okay decarcerate do you want to take these people in because a lot of times they don't have anywhere else to go I'm sure they would love to be in your house but that's just me being you know a little um you know being a little cynical or sarcastic about the situation I feel like I'm like that every day about the situation (laughs) um but, you know, all sarcasm aside, I think maybe RTCs and RTFs for adults might be a good avenue to look at with modernization of jails and prisons as, you know, a backup plan for the people who can't be successful in those programs, as well as the people who just are not open to rehabilitation at all. Because remember, if someone's not open to rehabilitation, they are not going to be rehabilitated. You can go to therapy every single day for the next five years. And if you sit in the therapist's office with your mouth shut and you don't say anything to them, it's not going to be successful. So I think that in the whole advocacy, like I've always said, there needs to be better communication and less 
angry and emotional. And I understand you're passionate about reforming the system. I am too. But sometimes I have to really take a step back. I have to feel my emotions, vent to people about how I'm feeling. If I'm frustrated, I'm angry about something. And then once I get that out, I step back. And then I step into the role of I have to be here to help these people. And I have to put my emotions aside and stop being angry about how you're moving forward. I know it's frustrating. It's hard to not be angry. But you have to communicate with the people who are running these systems. You have to forge relationships with them. You have to understand the system instead of being outside the gates yelling about what you want to see happening. There has to be a relationship. And I know it can be difficult with certain people in the administrations. There has to be a relationship and there has to be an understanding and there has to be um, a mutual respect. And that's from both sides. And you have to, I can't stress this enough. You have to ensure that before you start taking these actions to decarcerate that there's proper transitional programs and there's proper community supports in place. And you have to remember your own privilege because the people, regardless of how much work we do for these people while they're in jail, while they're in RTCs, even the foster kids I worked in who are in RTCs as opposed to being in juvenile detention centers, they do so well and you will see them getting better and really changing their mindset and their desire to change and be better once they get to the outside. But if you're releasing them to the same neighborhoods and the same people who expect them to do the same things that got them in trouble in the first place, the cycle's not going to end. We, there's a lot more that goes into just releasing people. We have to make sure, we have to understand that if you're just releasing them back to the same thing, they're, they're going to keep repeating offenses and it, it's just going to be a cycle that's going to keep going on. That's it for us today. Follow us on Instagram at Jailbird Chronicles. I'm Ashley. And I'm Brittany. Join us next week on Jailbird Chronicles. Lights out, Jailbirds. Jailbird. <laughs>